the statistic that resonates the most with people just because it's so easy to kind of feel is that the gaming industry is bigger than a combination of the music industry and Hollywood. Which I think if you if you were to ask someone to rank them, I don't know that most people would would have gaming at the top there. Um, and I think you know that's that's really the opportunity. And and if you can kind of see that and and begin looking forward, you start to see what the gaming industry can become. And we're already seeing some of these these kind of trends play out. Welcome to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. The investing show with a buzz. Sit back, relax. Let's take the edge off. Grab a nice glass of bourbon and enjoy. Cheers from your host, James Vermillion. But first, let me kindly remind you, the information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific, individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision. Thanks for listening. Hello, I'm James Vermillion, founder of Vermillion Private Wealth, and this is Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, Episode 7. My guest on today's show is Tim Maloney, co-founder and CIO of Roundhill Investments. Roundhill Investments is a registered investment advisor and ETF sponsor that focuses on thematic and sector-specific investing. They create investment products designed to help investors express their visions of the future. Some of the themes expressed in their ETFs include esports, sports betting, and streaming. When I'm building investment portfolios for my clients, I start by identifying secular trends that are changing the way we live, work, and interact. Tim and Roundhill have taken a similar approach. While we sip and compare notes on two different bourbons, our conversations cover the monstrous size and growth of the gaming industry, how the gaming revenue model has changed in the last decade, the metaverse, what it is and what it could become, gaming developments outside of the United States, cloud gaming and where we're at today, augmented and virtual reality, and more. As a reminder, this show is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered investment advice or a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Tim, thanks for coming on, man. How are you? For sure. Happy to be here. Thanks for uh, having me, James. I'm all all good. Um, no, no real complaints here. Good. Well, I'm excited uh, to talk to you. Uh, you know, I, some of the secular themes that you guys cover with some of your ETFs, and I'll let you talk a little bit more about that later, overlap quite a bit with some of the investment areas I kind of watch particularly w- closely, um, just because I, I look at, you know, how the world is changing and things like that. And a lot of the things you guys are looking at are some of the same things I'm picking up on. So I thought you'd be a good person to talk to. Um, you know, especially maybe in the gaming space and things like that. But we can, uh, we'll see where the conversation uh, leads us for sure. Before we go into into all that, it is Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon. And, and we're going to do something a little different this time because we're drinking two different things. So um, I've, I've got a uh, something I've never had before, which um, is always a treat. But it's a special edition or a sp- special release from Woodford Reserve. It's called Master's Collection. And this one is the 1838 style uh, white corn. Really what it is, they put out an annual release um, in their master's collection. And in this one, they took their Woodford Reserve, their regular mash bill, and they swapped out like the yellow maize for uh, white corn. And I I believe the reason they did that, I think um, Chris Morris said, the master distiller over at Woodford Reserve, basically said he was paying tribute to the Pepper and Crow distilleries that were on that site back in the day there in Versailles, Kentucky. So. Um, I think it's going to provide a little bit different flavor to to kind of that uh, Woodford Reserve kind of normal style 
that you might be used to. Um, it's about 90.4 proof and there's no age statement on this, but I'll, I'll give it a taste and, uh, and uh, maybe make a prediction on how old I think it is. But I'll, uh, that's what I'm drinking. I know you've, you've got a bottle of um, High West, I believe. Is that right? I do, yeah. So I got some High West American Prairie bourbon here. Um, yeah. I did not drink uh, the, the, the balance of the bottle before the show, I promise. Um, <laughs> I'm not, I don't drink a ton of bourbon, but this is uh, from a distillery in Park City, Utah. Um, so I, I went there and actually picked this up on the ground. Uh, actually, maybe not this bottle, but I first had it there at the at the distillery, and uh, you know, I think it's a, a real high quality operation. It sounds like you've had it before as well, too. So, yeah, I have. You know, they're, they're an interesting one because in Kentucky, we're really really picky about bourbons, especially those that are that are not made in Kentucky. Uh, it's like kind of like that's our thing, so. you know what I mean? So, um, but I've had I had High West. Um, I don't know. It's been several years since I had it the first time. And uh, they are very high quality. I, I think they've done a great job. Their marketing is really cool. Their bottles are cool. Um, so, so they do a great job with their bourbons um, and their rice. So, so cool. Um, let's. I'll tell you. Here's what I'm kind of getting on this uh, Woodford Reserve. It's definitely toasty, kind of some toasted sugar. Definitely uh, some citrus and maybe some green apple there on the nose. And I'll give it a taste here. Yeah, that citrus keeps going. There's some lemongrass almost. Little um, little uh, hay. Um, but definitely some lemon, long, really nice finish, buttery finish. Definitely can tell the difference from from this to a, a, a compared to a regular bottle of, of Woodford Reserve. So it's 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 good, really good, really good. How's that? How's that going over there? Very with nice. the High West. Yeah, so I'm going to do my best uh, my best tasting here. I don't drink a ton of bourbon, so I'm actually curious. What do you look for when you drink bourbon compared to kind of other liquors or spirits? While I kind of. Yeah. So, you know, one of the biggest things, of course, with bourbon is going to be that oak um, because bourbon has to be aged in virgin charred oak barrels. So that's different from a lot of spirits like, say, an Irish whiskey or scotch. They're actually usually buying used bourbon barrels to age their spirits in. But bourbon barrels Mm -hmm. have to be virgin. They can't have been used before. So what you get is you pick up a lot more of that oak because it's the first time any liquid has been in there. Um, so that's, right. that to me is really one of the keys to bourbon that makes it special. Other than that, it kind of depends on the mash bill. I mean, if you get something, uh, bourbon has to be at least 50% corn. If you get something really high in corn, you get a little bit more of that corn sweetness. If you get something that's more, closer to that 50% and then there's some rye and some other grains in there, you might get something that's maybe not as sweet. You might get some bitter notes coming through or, or just some other flavors. But what I kind of look for is complexity. I like something that makes me think that something that I, you know, I, I can't quite put my finger on what it is, something that uh, mm-hmm. kind of maybe even changes as it sits in the glass over a period of 15, 20 minutes. So and it, kind of in a nutshell, that that's what I'm looking for. And of course, you'll pick up on, you know, your sweeter, sweeter notes, your citrus notes, um, some nuttiness, earth tones you might find in there, even some chocolate, coffee. Um, you can you can pick up on all kinds of things. And I'm not a master taster. I'm yep. really not. No, no, you're, you're, it's helpful. I think that the two that I think came to mind for me was almost like a, a mapley type yeah. uh, a taste or a hint of that. And then a little bit of nut, almost like a, maybe not, I'm trying to think like a pecan almost. So like it wants to be sweet. It's not quite sweet, which is nice. Um, yeah. You know, obviously I'm just straight bourbon, no, no kind of additional sugar in there, but, right. um, but real, you know, I, it's a nice departure from the tequila I'm used to. It's, it's kind of um, a little yeah. bit warming in a way. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I'm going to have to go back. Um, I think I've got a bottle of High West at home. I don't, it might be the rye though, but, but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the cool thing about bourbon. I mean, I, I, I've got people, you can sit down and one thing that's really fun is to really lead somebody, 
you can just make shit up and 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 be like, you you get in that, and you know, once it's in their head, it doesn't matter what you just said, they're gonna pick it up. Yeah. So that's always a a, yeah. a fun experiment to do with when you're hanging around people and drinking. But that's, um, that's yeah. funny. My my brother works in the wine business, so I'm gonna ask him if he's ever done that with uh, you know, particularly kind of irritating customer. Just be like, yeah, yeah no, this is uh hints of like cardamom. It's like well, I don't even know what that. Is. I, gar- sure, I, I guarantee it. you, he has. I guarantee you, he has. So, <laughs> I love it. I love so it. we'll, Hey, we'll keep drinking. Um, and as we do, why don't you just tell us a little bit about Roundhill investments, what you guys do and, and kind of how you ended up there. Yeah, sure. So, um, so I founded Roundhill with, um, actually a good friend of mine going all the way back to kindergarten, if you can believe that. Oh, cool. Um, we started the, we started the company in uh, 2018 and, and sort of what we wanted to do is we wanted to create ETFs that, um, simultaneously did two things. The first is, appealed to a demographic that maybe skews a little bit younger, uh, but most importantly, a demographic that sees the second thing. And that is we wanted to tackle themes that they represent They represent themes that uh, you want to invest in for the future, but that maybe aren't packaged correctly to do that you know, right now. So I think that maybe wasn't right. my best kind of pitch of explaining it, but um, if it gives you an idea, I can kind of name them. It's, it's one is esports and digital entertainment, so video games. Mm-hmm or specific yeah. part of video games. One is sports betting, one is streaming, and then we just launched one focused on pro sports. So the idea is, you know, what do you want to take a longer term view on? And I think those are themes that they resonate with people. And ultimately, we're trying to provide products for people to use, right? Yeah, I mean, they definitely resonate with me and and, and a lot of my client base, um, which does also skew younger, um, which you kind of mentioned, but not totally. Um, it, it, it does tend to, but, but I certainly have some older clients who are who are equally um, and sometimes even more interested in some of these things because they really take pride in, in kind of keeping up with what's going on and, and changes and not necessarily in that uh, resistance heavy kind of way that, that some people do. So yeah. I think that's cool. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on. It's not intended to be for younger people. That's why I always add the second part. It's really for people who see these 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 themes and these trends. And if you see it, then maybe you want to invest in it. So you don't have to be a certain age to see it. Um, For sure. I think that's an important distinction. Yeah, definitely. So, you know, I gaming is the one that really esports and gaming, um, which I kind of lump together, generally speaking. But that's the one I'm really interested as far as um, what you guys do, because that market, I think, is so much bigger than people realize, especially here in this country. We kind of look at gaming and we compare it to, you know, television and music and things like that. And I think it often takes a back seat. People just don't realize how huge that market is, how many people are gaming, and even more surprising, I think, how many people are watching other people game. And it's a huge, huge business. So can you just talk a little bit about that market and how big it is and maybe why people don't have an understanding of how large it is? Yeah, no, happy to. And I think the statistic that resonates the most with people, just because it's so easy to kind of feel, is that the gaming industry is bigger than a combination of the music industry and Hollywood. It's so crazy, the yeah. Size of the, which I think, if you if you were to ask someone to rank them, I don't know that most people would would have gaming at the top there. Um, and I think you know that's that's really the opportunity. And and if you can kind of see that and and begin looking forward, you start to see what the gaming industry can become. And we're already seeing some of these these kind of trends play out with the free to play model, which yeah. is kind of a, a majorly different way of running a game business basically and how that can lead into these other concepts of you know metaverse and digital worlds and what what then gets built on top of that and maybe that's something we get to a little bit later but 
the reason I mentioned that is I think it in a way becomes more than gaming over time because it's this interactive experience, right? TV shows, I love them. I still watch a ton of TV, but they're not interactive. Where right. video game, different experience for everyone, really. No, that's great. You touched on like four or five different things I had notes on here. So I, I know I know we're going to have a good conversation. But I saw <laughs> going back to your explanation about how large that market is in comparison to Hollywood and the music business. I heard your partner will say on a on an interview that more people watch e-gaming than Netflix, HBO, Hulu, and ESPN combined. And <laughs> and I kind of already knew the numbers and that still blew my mind. Just massive. Yep, that's that's another one of the like uh the go-to kind of back pocket statistics where it's like let me put this in perspective for you. Like people, cause, cause there are people who say, well, people play video games. That's fine, but no one's really watching other people play. And I'm like, no, they, they are. Trust yeah. me. Like that's some of the biggest part of the, uh, the opportunity. Yeah. And that's a really interesting part to me because and maybe, maybe it just dates me a little bit, but that part was the surprising part to me. I, I grew up gaming and that was always a part of what we did. And we would get together and have, you know, parties and play golden eye and do all these things. We obviously didn't have some of the online opportunities back then that exist today. And certainly, you know, we didn't sit around watching. If I was sitting watching someone else playing, I was trying to find something else to do until it was my turn again. <laughs> so it's just a different world. There, there are different type of games that are out there as well. But that was the surprising part to me. But I'll be honest with you, especially during COVID, I've definitely come around a lot more to it. I remember seeing some of the... Um, virtual racing games and stuff being broadcast because things were canceled. And that's when I really thought like, okay, this COVID, one of the positive things that could actually come out of COVID, at least for this business is just an explosion um, because it might get those people who were on the fence or just kind of saying like, why would I watch someone else play a racing game? I was as into watching people play the formula one game as I am in an actual formula one race. So it's pretty cool. Yeah. And I think at the end of the day, it's a form of entertainment. Like I, if I, if I ventured to guess your friends you played GoldenEye with, I'm guessing none of them were either spectacularly good at GoldenEye, nor were they particularly interesting to watch play. But if you watch the game streamers and the competitive players now, I'll separate them into two categories. Like the streamers like Ninja and some of these other big personalities, it's a lot of fun to watch, right? They're really good and it's exciting to watch. It's, it's, it's a form of entertainment. And then on the competitive side, I mean, if you play the games, even if you don't, but if you play the games, you watch the best in the world play and you're like, it's, it's this, for the same reason no one watches me play soccer, but you watch, you know, Messi and Ronaldo play, right? Like they're that much better and it's amazing to watch. I think that people kind of discount that and don't think of that when they think of video games. That's a really good point. Um, I can buy that for sure because, you know, you think about that's, that's really true with any, anything, no matter what it is, right? You're not going to pay, pay me to do, to, to sing, uh, but that doesn't mean like, who would listen to anyone sing uh, there, you know, so that's, that's a really good way of looking at it. So good insight there for sure. You touched on the free to play model a little bit earlier, um, really briefly. That was another thing I've, I've looked at that's been surprising. I maybe wouldn't have predicted how quickly it shifted. You know, you go back to 2010, 80% of gaming revenue came from buying the game, uh, going to the store, to, to GameStop, to Walmart or Target or wherever, and actually buying the the CD or you know whatever the disc to put into the console, and twenty percent was like add ons, you know, unlocking special items or whatever. That's totally flipped. Um, it, it is now over, I think, eighty percent in game purchases that are making up the revenue model for 
for, you know, gaming companies. So can you touch on that just a little bit? Like, is, did that happen quicker than you all thought it would? How quickly before all games are free to play and everything is, is paid, you know, uh, unlock, I guess, or whatever in game purchases. Yeah, it's a great question. One of my uh, colleagues wrote a really interesting piece on kind of the games as a service model, which is kind of, I don't know if we're the only ones using it, but what, what I kind of think is happening here, right? Um, I think technology has been a big driver of it. And I think it's really easy to understate that. But the reality is you used to buy the game for 60 bucks at a GameStop and then you brought it home. That was the game. You couldn't, there was no way for the company to to patch an update through. If there was something wrong with it, you couldn't do that. Now, my Xbox is sitting back there downloading updates to all the games that are on it live. So I think the technology that's enabled, um, you know, both that piece of it, the ability to stream at, at kind of high qualities and play against others in a competitive way, you know, there's really been this technological undercurrent that's really allowed it. Um, looking at the actual model, I think when you look at it from a game publisher's point of view, it's actually kind of a win, right? You get kind of consistent recurring revenues over time. Um, it's lower margin. I mean, higher margin, excuse me, because you're not you're not necessarily printing these things out and selling them then to GameStop and having someone take a cut. It's directly downloaded. Now, of course, the game stores will take a cut, but th- there's there's savings there. Uh, and I think for the players, it's better too, because you typically get to at least try the game for free, right? right. Uh, and then if you if you're sticky and you enjoy playing it and your friends are playing it, that's where the companies are able to then monetize. So it's kind of, in my mind, it's it's like, almost like a better model for all parts of the the ecosystem, which is, you don't usually get that. Um, but I think the the most important piece to it, I think, is when a game's free to play, you get these network effects, right? Everyone at some point has probably played Fortnite. Um, not everyone would have played it if it was 60 bucks to download and some portion of those people stick around. And that to me is, there's a stickiness element that I think is, is very hard to measure. I mean, you could certainly over time, but you kind of don't have, you don't have the study where, Fortnite was $60 to download. Um, right. But I think those are a few of the things that come to mind when we talk about that that new business model and the fact that it feels like a win to everyone. Yeah, I think all those are very valid. And another one I think of is there are probably some points in time, I think about my own gaming experiences, where I paid $60 for a game and I was like, oh my gosh, this is like a giant piece of shit. Like I wouldn't have paid $10 for it. But there were other games that I played, I paid $60 for them. And I kind of look back, I played it for hours and hours and hours and hours. It's like I would have paid 150 for this game. So if the game is really good and it's free, but you can buy, you know, you can spend money in game. I think so many games are going to be able to really unlock their true value with the gamer themselves because they might say, hey, I keep pouring money into this game, but it's my form of entertainment that I love. And, you know, I'm getting a value for it uh, that I think is appropriate. Yep. And one thing I think is interesting, too, on this note is a lot of these games, not only are they free to play, but you could just continue to not pay for it. In a Uh lot of cases, a lot of what people pay for, and frankly, the gaming community prefers it to be like this, are cosmetic upgrades or or other things that don't actually impact what's available to you in the game. Um, There's there's actually a lot of backlash anytime a a publisher puts something out where you can kind of pay to win. So if you pay enough money, you get enough and like it makes it unfair for everyone else. So, you know, I don't think everyone realizes that this money being made is largely being made from, you know, in-game cosmetic type items and people are still willing to pay because I think it's their way of supporting the the games they they love, right? So you're basically saying like, you know, you can customize your avatar, your character as opposed to like like unlocking like extra points that you can use to upgrade your character. Yeah, I think that's I think that's totally valid for sure. 
So and there, I mean, there's some, there's different models that all work, but the reality is none of them are supposed, most of them, if they're doing it right, they aren't making it easier for you to win. Right. right? It's right. meant to be non-competitive upgrades. Right. Yeah. I could see that being pretty irritating if you're playing a game and it's like whoever throws the most money at it wins. <laughs> so yep, exactly. Well, let's talk a little bit more about esports um, in particular. And I, I generally don't like to bring up COVID just because I know everyone's got COVID fatigue at this point. We're all like just ready to move on. But in this case, um, you know, I, I briefly touched on it earlier. What effect do you think that had on maybe growing the audience base permanently as opposed to maybe someone who just did it for the moment because there that was the best option at the time. Yep. So, and esports for anyone who's listening is kind of like, what is all this about? It's basically competitive video games. Um, and I'm separating that out from like just game streaming for the purposes of what I'm about to say. Um, I think really what happened was esports were able to come back more quickly than sports. Now, most esports actually do have a component where it at the very least helps to be in person. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of them had live events they were doing. Obviously, those were canceled, similar to the professional sports. Um, a lot of them, if they're team games, it helps to be in the same room. Um, and then you don't have to have kind of bandwidth issues and things like that. But what we saw was esports were able to get back much more quickly. And I think as a result, you had a lot of people who were you know, they were missing, you know, baseball, basketball, hockey, whatever their go-to is. And I think they began kind of converting and watching people play these video games competitively. Now, not all of them will stick, but even if some of them do, then you make the argument that COVID accelerated the the kind of interest in the the sector. Um, and that's that's specific to esports to say nothing of the acceleration of gaming interest, which if I had a nickel for every friend who texted me, who I'd never spoken to gaming about, who was like, I, which next gen console should I get? Or uh, I can't <laughs> right. buy an Xbox, they're sold out. Or can you get me a switch on the black market? It's like, <laughs> there's more interest coming up. Um, but specifically for esports, I think it, it brought a new audience in that wouldn't have otherwise come. And some of them will stay. Yeah, I think if anything else, I think that I think a lot of them will stick. And I think if anything else, it, it might not be that they're now avid esports watchers. But it's just another uh, option they have when kind of choosing if there's nothing else on or they just finished streaming a show and they can't find anything to watch. So at least it's in that kind of entertainment bank for them to choose from. So, yeah, they might not be like all of a sudden spending all their time, you know, watching esports, but but it's an option for them. And I think uh, people like to have options. So I think people embrace that. Yep, no, for sure. And then let's talk about this because this one's. I know how big gaming in general is here in the United States, especially, you know, when you get into younger demographics, but it really, I don't think kind of compares to how large it is in some of the Eastern um, countries, you know, especially in Asia, Korea and China and things like that. How much do you guys uh, kind of put into those markets as far as your research and things like that, or just kind of what do you see in those markets compared to the U S yeah. So, um, it, it's certainly not scientific what I'm about to say, but I, I like to say that kind of China and, and Asia more broadly, specifically, frankly, South Korea is like mm -hmm. a, a gaming hub that if you haven't read about it, it's kind of amazing what's going on there. But I, th there are a few years ahead, always, you know, three, five, maybe I don't want to say 10 because 10 years in the gaming industry is like forever, but they're, they're really ahead. And a lot of the innovation that we're seeing starts there. So I, I, it is it is measurably different in a lot of ways. Uh, and there are various reasons over time that have been drivers of that. Um, I do think we're starting to reach a point where things can normalize a little bit. It's not to say that that Asia will kind of lose its lead on the gaming industry, but um, 
there's enough interest in other parts of the world now that, um, you know, I, I don't know that that edge continues unless they continue to push the envelope. Um, one place where I think they could continue to push, push the envelope is with things like a metaverse, which again, we can go into, it's sort of a separate topic, but yeah. um, where gaming evolves to just an on, uh, you know, online, a second world as it were. But yeah, so ho- I think that answered the question. They, they are certainly typically ahead um, a lot of innovation does come from the region. South Korea, in particular, is one place to watch. I think um, China, obviously, everyone everyone yeah. knows of. So I'm not yeah. going to that point. Well, let's go ahead and jump into that metaverse question you brought up. It was actually on my list here to kind of talk about how gaming can become, you know, that third place. People talk about the third place, which number one and two being kind of work and school and one of the two and home being the other. And then the third place might be your church or your local bar or your sports venue, like wherever that you spent your, your free time basically. And all of a sudden you don't have to go anywhere necessarily. You don't actually have to go to a a, a physical third place. That third place could just be an online virtual community or a virtual world. So yeah, let's, let's jump into that because I think that's something this this one, I think older uh, people who don't keep up with, with gaming really have a hard time with, um, but it's coming. In fact, it's probably already here um, when you hear about things like Roblox and um, just a, there are a lot of a lot of things out there that, that, that could all play into this. There's an augmented reality and virtual reality opportunity that's, that's probably lurking in the background. So just kind of explain that concept of, of the metaverse, what that means and, and what how that could look in a couple of years. Yeah. So I think. The metaverse is in a lot of ways here, and in a lot of ways, it's still a, a little ways out. And what I mean by that is the technologies that will ultimately support the metaverse are either built or being built, right? Um, so some of the things that go into it, the you know, you need to be able to have tremendous amount of bandwidth to have a a kind of virtual world where people are living, right? You need to have a, a, a economic system built in. So whether digital currencies play a way into that, or I mean, they will, in my opinion. Um, you know, but the, the the constituent elements that will build the metaverse are sort of here. It's just a matter of them being put together. So you mentioned Roblox. There are a few others that kind of provide the actual, the place. And that's one of probably the most notable and visible pieces of the technology. Um, it's already taking place, right? Yeah. I think Fortnite's another one where yeah. Tim Sweeney was, I want to say famously asked, but it's not fair because it was from Will. But Will tweeted is... Um, is Epic Games a game company or something else? And I think Tim's response was like, I'll tell you in a year, something like that. <laughs> right. So it's 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 rapidly evolving where all these technologies are sort of coming together in a way that I do believe there will be a third place, to your point, where people meet, congregate, and and frankly, you know, have experiences um, in a way that I think to your point, it's very hard to understand, even for someone like me who's watching the industry closely, exactly what that ends up looking like. But it's going to happen. It, it's almost inevitable in my mind. Um, and you know, I'm I'm excited to see kind of where it goes. I will say there are a lot of people out there who know a lot more about the metaverse itself than I do. Um, I kind of follow different parts of it, obviously, as part of my my right. job here. But um, you know, I, I think it's going to be really cool to watch. No, I, I agree. I think it's really interesting. It's one of those things you kind of take a step back from it. And, and I still can't quite wrap my head around it. I'm just like, I feel like I'm probably like seven or eight years too old to like really kind of understand the whole thing. But I, I you know, I, I think it's a really interesting concept. I, I think it's a, totally inevitable, like you mentioned. And just the other day, I was talking to, um, I forget who I was talking to. I was talking to a friend and they said their uh, nephew, I think, 
was talking about their friend from Chicago and they live here in Kentucky and they're like, Oh, like how'd you meet that him or, or whatever? And they, he was like, Oh, I, you know, I met him online playing whatever game he was playing. And you know, the friend was like that, you know, that's, that's kind of strange. Um, and then on the other hand, I was like, well, you met your partner on Instagram. So <laughs> it's not that different really, but, mm-hmm. but yeah, I just think, you know, if you don't grow up in it and you don't, you weren't a part of it, I think it's just so easy to kind of write it off and say like, it's silly or it's not going to happen, but, but this is happening. I'm with you. I don't see any, any way that it doesn't happen. And I think you're totally spot on about digital currencies. I think that's definitely going to be wrapped in, in some way, shape or form. And, um, and I think it's going to be very interesting to kind of see how it plays out and then how that uh, third place disrupts maybe other traditional third places or how they link together in certain, I mean, there's just so, so much to unwrap when you kind of think about it. Yeah. And also how it disrupts, you know, I don't know if this is the right terminology, but the first and second places, right? Yeah, um, for sure. You know, I think there's, there's, there's a lot of people who would say, you know, there's, there's risks to everyone living in this virtual worlds. And I think a lot of that gets overblown, but it will have an impact on how you, you know, on, on decisions made about first place, right? If a lot of your time is being spent in the metaverse, then you don't need to spend what I spend a month in San Francisco to live in San Francisco anymore or New York or pick your big market, yeah. right? So I think yeah. there will be material impacts on the balance of the world. Even if you're not paying attention to the metaverse and you don't believe it exists, it's going to impact you. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, and I think that's, if there's any one reason to at least pay attention to it, it's because of that, right? There will be impacts to people who, could care less about what's happening in the metaverse. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's very true. Let's shift a little bit um, because this is something I really, this, this goes kind of beyond what I normally, you know, think about in gaming, mainly because I just probably haven't paid enough attention to it. And I'm not real sure, honestly, where it's at cloud computing. It seems like we're like kind of got one foot in one foot out because you had Google Stadia kind of come on board. And I honestly haven't heard anything about it kind of since it launched. I'm sure there are other things happening in kind of the cloud gaming space as far as, you know, you don't need a console to play or all these things. Then you've got the the massive reaction to the next gen consoles that just came out. So I'm kind of like indifferent. Maybe we're not, maybe that was just premature or was there something fundamentally wrong with like the way Google went about it? What kind of, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, this is an interesting question. Um, it's a great question too. I think there's, look, we're ultimately going to have kind of cloud gaming in the way that Google tried to build it and in the way that it's been attempted before. Mm-hmm. Um, I think we will get there. I think the technology is getting there. Um, I think, frankly, the becomes a question of who do you want it to appeal to first, right? So if you want to try and have cloud gaming and, and maybe kind of cross-platform gaming and have it appeal to the most hardcore gamers, you have to make sure that it works 100% as well as the alternative for them because they will not sacrifice performance for, you know, for you to help kind of get your business objectives across in a way. So I know that's like a little bit of a oversimplification, but I think that's, I think that getting the right kind of initial target audience for cloud gaming is going to be the the thing that ultimately makes it work. And I think that's where it's been missed in the past. If that makes sense. No, it does make sense. And I wonder too, I have no idea. I wonder if their timing was just maybe a little weird, you know, like I took, take someone like myself, I'm just a casual gamer. I occasionally will, will, will play, um, I'm not going to rush out and get the uh, new console and, and spend a bunch of money on that. It. It's just not what I'm going to do. I'll still maybe pick up a controller every once in a while and, you know, play a game of FIFA or something. But so, you know, maybe I would, would have been a good target because that's kind of an alternative to me from going and buying the console. And to your point, 
if I get a little bit of lag or something on the performance side, I'm not going to get so pissed. I'm like, start breaking things. Whereas someone who is a professional gamer or just a hardcore gamer that that could ruin their day, you know? Yeah. I think the other thing that's interesting to think about is, is, um, is, is kind of tying back to this is, is who's it coming from? So if it's coming from like a big tech company where maybe you're already a user of their other services and they find a way to bundle it where you're willing to try it when you otherwise wouldn't, that might be a model that works a little more cleanly where they introduce, you know, maybe it's a new audience to gaming, maybe it's an audience that already games a little bit, but hitting them from a different angle. Um, I think that might be the approach if one of those companies is going to get it right. Otherwise, it's going to come from a, you know, a gaming specific company and it's going to hit the co- the hardcore audience and it's going to have enough benefits that it gets adopted and then kind of spreads from there. Um, but it's, it'll be interesting to watch. It's, it's, there's less uncertainty maybe than the metaverse itself, but you know, who actually gets an effective platform there? It's up in the air. No, it's great. You timed that so well, because I was just about to ask what role does big tech when it comes to, you know, the names we all know, Amazon, Amazon, Microsoft, Google, um, what, what role do they play in all this is, are they, are they, you know, Facebook with Oculus is, is definitely throwing tons of resources into the virtual reality side, but who, like what's going on? Are they going to capture this or is it going to be some of these gaming companies who ultimately, I know you don't know, but I mean, where do you see it going? Yeah. Well, it's interesting. If you look back at, at gaming for the last couple decades, what you see is a lot of the big tech players are in now, but in a lot of cases, they, they didn't get in organically, right? So Amazon is, you know, owns Twitch. They right. didn't start Twitch out of an incubator within Amazon. They bought it for a billion dollars. Um, so I think in a lot of cases, um, that's the model that's been working for them. I mean, similar goes for Google and YouTube, right? It kind of, yeah. you look across the spectrum. The one exception I would say, not that it's, it's not really an exception because they have done a lot of similar things, but Tencent seems to have sort of the the magic touch within the gaming industry. Everything they touch is turning to gold and either they're picking all the right names or there's something about being a, you know, a Tencent holding of some kind. Um, but they have their their tentacles in like every major gaming project at this point. Um, but I don't know. If I if I had to guess, I would say that there'll be a a viral experience of some kind that drives forward. And this is could frankly go for the metaverse or cloud computing, probably more likely for the metaverse. But there'll be some viral experience from a, a, a more of an upstart company, like we've sort of seen with companies like Roblox. Um, and I know they're not small upstart, but from a gaming company that will drive forward progress elsewhere and and kind of continue moving moving the industry forward. I think that's sort of what I've seen in gaming historically is it's, it's, it doesn't come from big tech, but big tech is quick to get involved. Well, that's a, your point about Tencent was really funny because it does beg the question, like, are they just really, really damn good at like identifying acquisition targets? Or is there something about how they operate as a holding company, as a parent company and integrating and creating synergies? Like, what is it? That's because whatever that is, if if you can kind of figure that out, you know, that makes a big difference. And it also makes a difference when thinking about them as a company uh, and what their future looks like. So that's a really interesting point. It does. It's a little bit of a mix, but I do think they just have an eye for the industry. I don't, because like, from what I gather about some of their larger holdings, even ones where they own the whole company, um, I, I don't think they're that involved day to day. I don't think they're overseeing and saying, do this this way and this this way or otherwise, no. There are exceptions to that. But I think they just, they've had the balance sheet to make investments and they've seen what the gaming industry was and was going to be. 
and they haven't been shy to to make them. And I think that's really what it is. But you know, we'll we'll see. I think there's we could start getting down a rabbit hole that's a little different with any trust in China and how that ultimately shakes out because. Yeah. Who knows what's going to happen there, but yeah, well, maybe them staying out to some degree is part of their magic because how many times have you seen a company that continuously makes acquisitions and goes on to ruin the exact reason they made the acquisition? So, I mean, I see that all the time. So, yep, no, I, I, it's definitely true. Um, you know, notably in the tech industry, but I'm sure elsewhere. And it's, you know, I've never been a part of a large company acquiring another company, but I would think that learning from history and kind of yeah, letting them do their thing has some value. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I mean, there there's a lot that would go into that, and that that could be another <laughs> a whole different conversation. But um, yeah, exactly. Let's talk a little bit on the augmented reality and virtual reality side. You know, I, that's a space I just surface level kind of keep up with. What role do you see that playing, especially like on the esports side? Are we? I'm, I imagine we're maybe still several years away from that being like a massive, massive part of it, or maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. Yeah. Okay. So, um, I like to take a step back whenever we talk about this, and this is another area where I have, I have some knowledge, but not as much as a lot of other people. Um, so augmented reality versus virtual reality, they, they get lumped together a lot, but they really have different applications. And, and I think it's worth noting them. So augmented reality is something like, you know, Pokemon Go, where you're you're seeing reality, but there's a Pikachu, right? Mm-hmm. And I think that application has a lot more widespread uses and will be, you know, more interesting more quickly. Virtual reality is, I don't want to say clunky, because I don't think that's fair, but it's unnatural. It's unnatural for humans who have evolved to a certain point for a certain reason to fully shut off their senses and wear something that gives them a, a full new world and then try to move around in it. I think there's some hurdles there. I know there's been some notable figureheads. I'm trying to remember who. I think it was Mark Cuban at one point came out and was like, no one's going to do virtual reality because it's not natural for the reasons I just said. I don't agree with that. Um, but it's a lot It's a lot tougher of an adoption. I mean, I was yeah. at a gaming conference recently and I put on the mask and not recently, like over a year ago, pre-COVID. And I put on the mask and I was like in this virtual world climbing this like this this net in a you know during a, a disco or a rave whatever you want to call it it's really cool but like it's really disoriented like, like it, it's weird it's really weird um but it but it's cool so anyway splitting the two up i think they both will have a role i think when you think of a metaverse obviously you get much more towards virtual right because it's this immersive experience um i think augmented reality is going to have interesting applications that go well beyond gaming over time right yeah yeah for sure everyday experiences that are augmented and i think that'll be that'll be cool to watch too but well climbing a net, a net at a rave that's just like a saturday night for me man I, yeah i mean it was it was it was what i was on my way to do in the real world later that night exactly yeah how did it compare so yeah, exactly. Um, let's talk a little bit more specifically because again, I'm I'm kind of surface level on this stuff. I always want to learn more about, you know, areas uh, of of investment that I think are kind of on the cutting edge um and areas that could see rapid growth. And I know we're in the middle of huge growth for this industry, but as as we've kind of talked, um it's kind of reinforced some of my thoughts about this isn't probably slowing down or going away anytime soon. What are what are are there some areas that you think just like someone like me who who tries to keep up with it, but I'm not in it every day. Are there some areas, companies, um, technologies, or just anything that you think like most people probably don't even know this is happening or they don't know these names or anything like that? 
names get a little tricky um, for me to just start kind of throwing out there. Um, within really what nerds trying to look at, and this is not just a sales pitch, it's kind of meant to be um, instructive. We're looking at the the esports and digital entertainment side of gaming, which kind of has three components in my mind. It's the competitive play, it's the streamed play, and it's the social side of things. So I think those are three of the kind of broad umbrellas that I like to look under because they're the ones that offer the most um, sort of long-term opportunity um, within gaming. And, and the social one really is is meant to include things that will ultimately be a part of the metaverse over time. Um, right. So I think when you're looking at uh, a gaming company, you want to ask if they're positioned to take advantage of those sort of three things is the way I think about it. Um, or are they going to go viral on Reddit, even though they're a <laughs> moderately bankrupt? Uh, <laughs> sorry, I shouldn't get into GameStop. That's the verb talking. Um, it happens. It happens. <laughs> It's so easy. Yeah, it, it's it's too easy. But no, I think within gaming, you know, it's going to become increasingly social. I think if if a company's fighting free to play for some reason, I would I would take a closer look. That's probably not the right decision in my mind. I think it's becoming an expected experience for gamers themselves. And if there's one community you don't want to like upset with an experience that's not what they want, it's gaming, right? Like they will. They will get on Reddit and on Discord and tell people about their experience. Yeah, we're traveling. You get fast. bad press in the ga- exactly. You get bad press in the gaming industry so quickly. It's not you don't want to mess that up. Um, but anyway, I think those are some of the the places to look. Um, yeah, yeah. I know that's a little broad, but no, no, that's good. There's there's one more thing I want to talk about before we go into kind of like my closing questions. But and this one is out of your wheelhouse. I'm, uh, you know, probably as far as, um, but it's just something I'm interested in. You know, when I think about like Unreal Engine and uh, there are some others that I'm not as familiar with, you know, a lot of people kind of talk about those in as methods to kind of democratize gaming as far as these smaller companies can now develop games using various engines much more cheaply, much more easily. And as far as gamers go, they don't care how much production money or time was spent on a game. If the game is entertaining and serves their purpose, like they're perfectly happy playing it what role do you see those engines playing and kind of going forward is is there going to be like just uh just so many more choices for gamers because it's going to be easier for anyone to create a game or is am i kind of taking that too far no no i don't think you're taking it too far i'm trying to think of a good analogy that goes outside of gaming for what what game engines do but i think you you really did kind of hit it on the head everything i'm thinking of comes back to engineering which frankly isn't something i think of website building that's that's the one I there, really there think of because like I built my own website and I do not know I know I know enough coding to like make someone who knows coding laugh at how bad I am. So I could not have built a website a few years ago without kind of this structure that that's probably oversimplifying it for the gaming thing, but that's kind of the parallel I use. It's no, it's a good one. I was going to say like no code, like the trend of no code where you don't need to be a developer because someone's built in the background, all the code that allows someone who can't code to do something you would otherwise have needed engineering. I think that's a good analogy. And I think for gaming, it's it's just, it's materially more complicated, right? So if you're creating a game engine for Fortnite, which is what Epic does with the Unreal Engine, and you want it to be cross-platform accessible you need it to be able to work on all devices across different kind of speeds of web traffic. And, and there's so many variables that 
you know, they've been able to invest in and build. And now that technology can be made available to others who can focus on just the gameplay. So you can right. just build the game you want to play and you can drop it in and the engine says, okay, this person's playing on an iPhone. Let's give this experience and render this this way, et cetera, et cetera, versus someone on Xbox or PC. So I think it, it's a good, the website analogy works um, while acknowledging that it's maybe not infinitely more complicated, but it's, yeah, a, it's, it's, it's a really more hard problem yeah. to solve. Yeah. yeah, exactly. But I think, I mean, they're going to be important. And, and frankly, the applications of game engines does start to go beyond just games. I mean, you can use them for creating, like if you want to make a, a really cool CGI is not the right word, but it, there are other applications. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like making a movie and you're yeah, I mean, I've seen people do like some actual like really cool, like especially during COVID, they they use some gaming platforms to do um, introductions to like to their to their companies for new employees, like orientations. They they like video game orientations. I'm like, that's that's pretty cool, honestly. So we should probably you know, have that around, shouldn't we? Yeah, you guys should. That'd be awesome. That'd be awesome. I'd probably try to get it get it get a job just to try the uh, tutorial, <laughs> then 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 quit. So. I love it. I'll put that. I'll put that on the the to do list um, somewhere in the middle. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. Well, let's uh, yeah. let's kind of transition. I, I really appreciate all your insight into that. Like, literally, I know enough just to uh, kind of be able to casually talk to people about things. So I'm always trying to learn more and get a better grasp of some of these areas where I I think there are going to be many, 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 many investment opportunities. You know, in the coming you know, years, decades, yeah. really. So I really appreciate you coming on and kind of sharing some of that stuff um, with me. Happy for sure. Thanks for having me. Yeah. And then that, I, I try to ask a couple questions here at the end. You know, you've been in the kind of finance world, um, you know, for a while. And then, of course, you know, starting starting Round Hill and, and uh, you know, I've done some things. You know, now you're kind of in the gaming space, too, um, kind of through that. But, you know, just thinking more broadly about wealth and what that means, like what does wealth mean to you when you think about being wealthy? What what is being wealthy? Yeah, uh, it's funny. My answer like three years ago would have probably been very different, um, just because I was you know now that I have my own business, I, I, I have a different perspective. For me, it's being able to allocate my time to things that I enjoy, and like work now is something that I enjoy. I, I enjoy what I'm doing. I like. I mean, I don't go anywhere because I don't go to work, but I wake up. I'm excited to build this business and do things that I believe in, and try to give access to cool investment strategies to an audience that otherwise wouldn't have them. Um, So wealth for me is the ability to allocate your time in a way that makes you happy. Yeah. I think that's a, that's a great answer. And then the other one, it kind of goes back to the beginning of that one, actually talking about your answer would have been different. If you could go back in time and and revisit a much younger Tim, maybe just getting out of school or whatever, what advice would you kind of give yourself around business or, or, or money? Yeah, uh, it'd be something along the lines of just because a path has been beaten by many before you doesn't mean it's the right path for you. I, I, I just kind of, it's the first time I've said that in that way. I like that, way. yeah. Um, I, I, <laughs> I think it's really easy to fall down the, well, the path after college is to do this at a big company, and then you do this at a big company, and then eventually you'll have enough experience to do something that you love. Um, I think the the risk associated with entrepreneurship is maybe one of the most overstated. And I, I say that with the caveat that like everyone's position is different and and sure. you know, don't just quit your job and go start a business tomorrow. But I think the risk rewards actually, uh, you know, 
if you have a good idea and you want to go try and do it, like I'd encourage more people to go do it. I think a lot of people get held back. I got held back for many years by by being kind of afraid. And I think, yeah, it's not just about the wealth that you can create by being an owner of the business. That's part of it. But it's about the wealth you create, being able to spend your time doing something that's meaningful to you. And I think that's... That's great. That's great. Yeah. No, I think that's awesome. Well, man, I really appreciate it. I really enjoyed the conversation. Like I learned a, a ton about what's going on, uh, especially in the the gaming space. And and I may have to pick your brain sometime. I, there's There have been a couple um, ETF kind of routes I've started down as, as you know, uh, as wanted, wanted mm. to kind of deploy. And I'm sure that's a whole uh, a whole different animal. And I'm still really just kind of transitioning into into building my own wealth management firm here. So I got plenty of work to do for the time being, but yep. that's always been something that's been in the back of my head. So I may uh, reach out sometime and bring, bring you some bourbon um, out, out West there and, and uh, sit down properly and pick your brain a little bit. I love it. Happy to help. I think uh, the ETF industry is another place similar to gaming where, you know, it's, it's on the right side of history, I think for mm-hmm. what's going to happen moving forward. So always happy to chat ETFs and, and kind of, See if I can be helpful. Awesome. Well, thanks, Tim, again for coming on. Really enjoyed it. Good luck with everything you guys are doing at Roundhill. Um, it's really cool stuff, really interesting. And like I said, there's just a ton of overlap with kind of what you guys are doing and how my mind works. So so we may have to catch up again, but really appreciate you. For sure. Thanks for having me. Um, bottoms up. You gave me a good reason to, to have a drink a little early on a Thursday <laughs> here, but no, it was great. Great, great coming on and uh, you know, keep, keep me posted if you're ever out in the Bay Area. Absolutely will, man. Cheers. That was a fascinating discussion with Tim Maloney about an industry I find very interesting, especially when thinking about the coming decades and fast-moving technological improvements. On the next episode, I speak to a real estate investor whose life was upended by a medical diagnosis. He doesn't hold back in sharing his story, his business model, and more. And I even managed to get him fired up a few times, so make sure you subscribe or follow to be notified of future episodes. Thanks again for listening to Bulls, Bears, and Bourbon, the investing show with a buzz. Cheers.